If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. We have a mission to improve the welfare of horses throughout the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers and that's what these chats are all about. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Our guest today is Tanya Harding. Tanya's an eventing specialist. She's a competitor, trainer and coach. She's one up to and including three-star eventing and spends her days riding, training and coaching. How are you, Tanya? I'm well, thank you, Lena. Thanks for having us on board. That's okay, Tanya. Good to have you here. Tanya, we're going to start off with a favourite quote, get you straight into it. Have you got one for us? Oh, I've got a couple. I'm a great one for quotes, depending on where my life is at at any particular time. But yep. at the moment, it's pretty much, I've got two. One is um, be a horse maker, not a breaker, mm-hmm. which I really like. I like to sort of get a horse, maybe isn't the bees and knees of everything, but turn it into something rather than get you know, a ripper and then end up that it's sitting on the shelf. It's a bad term, isn't it? You know, horse breaking. Because a lot of people say they do breaking these days, but they're not. They're doing it very positively and positively yeah. for the horse. But it's sort of like the old Wild West breaking, breaking their spirit and breaking them down. And it's just not a very good term. Yeah. I think it gets politically correct comes in on occasions with sort of natural horsemanship and a few other sort of things we can overanalyze the, the term of it but um, I think it, yeah not so much the breaking part of starting them off but yeah you often see you know you can see competitors you know different ones juniors and other professionals and amateurs who, who go buy a, a well-performed horse and yep. 12 months down the track it's it's not doing anything I'd rather sort of try and have the other way yeah 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 and all for getting schoolmasters but don't get young talented horses and have them as schoolmasters yeah yeah, absolutely. Learn the ropes. Yep. Learn your yep. skills. Yeah. Yep. And, and learn where you're ready for. What what's your other quote, Tanya? My other quote is would you be it sounds a bit bit dire, but would you be happy if your life ended tomorrow? Would you be happy with what you've done and, and how you're going? So that old live every day as if it's the last mm-hmm. which sort of, you know, probably came in really effect. I I hang on that one a little bit now after some personal things happened probably about four years ago mm-hmm. and it really did change the whole scheme of the way I look at, at the way I live. Yep. So yep. Um, yep. that's definitely one that is a, an ongoing. Yeah, good, good. Now, Tanya, tell us about how you first started with horses because you're sort of really living the dream now as far as horse people goes and you've got the lifestyle that everyone wants. But what about your first memories? Do you remember what the, what they are? Look, I was pretty lucky. I had the opportunity from a very early age to be involved around horses. My mother and I lived together. We were, she was a single parent. She had an interest in horses all her life. And so the opportunity was there. And um, by four, I sort of had my first pony. What was his name? He was called Banshee. Yep. And he was actually a foal from my mum's handy stock station horse mare that she brought down from Queensland. Mm-hmm. So all the wrong things. There was a four-year-old kid with a four-year-old horse, and or well, he's a pony. That he only grew to about thirteen, mm. uh, thirteen one. He seemed ginormous to me at the time, but when we continued on as a partnership, till I was about twelve, 
and he was a very old school type of pony. He was an absolute ripper. He would always bark just harder than what I could ride. So as I got better, he got a little better too, and he'd still put me on the floor, and then I'd get better, and he'd give me a bit harder, and I'd still get put on the floor. <laughs> but he finished with me when he was 12, and he, he went on to um, teach a number of other kids to ride, and he was wonderful to watch in, in hindsight when I watched him, and you know he'd go with an absolute beginner, and he'd try and catch them as they were swaying around on top to having someone who was a lot more confident and then giving them, you know, a helping hand out the door. Mm. So mm. he was a really magical little horse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And probably good that you're in a position where you had at least a little bit of um, horse people around you, you know, when, when you were having yeah. problems with your horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he was pretty good. Then my mum sort of bred Arabians at the time and had a couple of thoroughbreds off the track that sort of helped her start eventing later on in life and that's probably where I first saw the sport in action mm-hmm. and then I just sort of as you do I had another a couple of little horses as I came through school and and things like that so I've always had a horse of my own and then we've just you know some of the ones that we've bred have come onto a team we to take two or three to a show or something like that so that was sort of my early years involvement in horses. So was it that you were always going to have a career with horses? Did you always think that or was did you do anything else? What happened there? Uh, no, it was never as a career. It was always something I did. I was fairly heavily involved in athletics as a junior as well, and that was quite competitive. So I balanced those two, and I was probably more successful at athletics than what I was at horses. And there seemed to be more of a career path for athletics than what there was with horses at the time. And no, I, I certainly, although I had a horse, I went and did the uni thing. And after uni, I um, travelled for a couple of years overseas and didn't really go and do the, you know, working pupil in a stable. I was a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so I used that as my travelling job. Um, it worked very well as a travelling job. And yeah, toured all through so Africa and Europe and based myself in England for quite a while and probably felt quite good there in financially I was okay in England and and ended up I wanted to go hunting and um, it was probably the first time I ever worked in the horse industry that wasn't around home Mm -hmm. and picked up a job in a hunting yard in Northumberland and um, I really enjoyed that that was a, a really special time a great opportunity. I had some very nice horses that they'd bought from Ireland, um, really good training and a very professional setup. So I was lucky to be involved in that before the hunt yard sort of changed post 2000. And yeah, I sort of came home and had a look what was in the paddock and continued to enjoy the sport, but more on a, um, still had a mainstream job and those sorts of things. And it wasn't until I felt that I was financially secure that I then looked and went, I can actually now have a lifestyle job that I would like mm-hmm. rather than what society thinks I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as you say, you may not have, um, because when you were younger and at school, there wasn't necessarily a career with horses, but it sounds like the hunting yard inspired you a bit more to work with horses. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed it. It was um, very good camaraderie mm-hmm. and it was an opportunity to see how, how something is done on a different level. And in Europe, everything's so close. So as much as I was over there, you know, I wanted to see the Grand National. I wanted to ride through Hyde Park. I wanted to see Hickstead. There was a lot of things 
that I wanted to do and they did all involve around horses. I just didn't go and work in a yard. And I think mm-hmm. that was good as well. I think going and doing other things in your life is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It gives you some life skills. It gives you opportunity and it makes you really think about whether you do or don't want to do it rather yep. than it's just there in front of you. So sure. I'll just trudge on through. <laughs> okay. Now, if someone did want to work with horses or if you were employing someone, what sort of core skills or character traits do you think that someone needs to work in the horse industry? They've got to have a good initiative. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the really key skill set. Learn from day to day. Like you don't have to, to know everything. You're not expected to know everything, but be willing to learn. Be very flexible. Yep. Horses are never on a timetable. So sure. if you're looking for that nine to five or you've got to be finished by three or you've got to be home for something else, it's probably not going to work for you. Mm-hmm. A bit of empathy, I think, is a, is a nice little skill set to have as well. Be empathetic about what you're doing with the horse when you're asking it, what you're asking it to do and go to that. Um, we sort of look at here being able to, to want to learn, to continue to learn, whether that's horse skills, skill sets as far as sensing, whatever it happens to be that's related to the industry. The more that you can put tools in your toolbox, the better that you are able to get through this industry successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you were saying about the fencing, you know, or just the other skills, because not everyone that goes into the horse industry does exactly the same job. There are quite a few different jobs that still relate and revolve around horses, but there are different different things, different parts of the industry. Yeah, and depending on your location to how the industries can run or to what discipline you're actually going into, mm-hmm. that can also vary, you know, what, what's sort of required. You know, I know different stables, they have, you know, people come in and do all sorts of, you know, one person looks after, say, fencing, one person does the arenas and, you know, someone else is onto all the, you know, running the bore and the watering system and someone else, you know, feeds the horses. Mm-hmm. You come here, you've got to do all of those. Yep. 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 That's a you know, that's the difference of how it sort of runs. Yeah. Um, there's not the the ability just to call someone in yes. as you need. Yep. Yep. Oh wait, before you go, if you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now, have a look. Horsechats.com. What do you think's the best thing about working in the horse industry, Tanya? I think it's a very lucky industry. There is one of the best things is the variety of people who are involved. It doesn't matter what your general personality is or your interest, there is a niche that will match and you'll find friends within the industry. I think one of the, the most positive things is that you get to work with one of the most non judgmental animals around mm. every day. So you know, each day that you go out, you've generally got a happy client meeting you at the gate, wondering what you're going to do with them for the day. Yep. So um, that's a pleasure. I think it's very rewarding if you're going about it. I find it extremely rewarding as a day, you know, to go out. And I don't find it about work. I just find it I'm not working anymore. I'm just living. Yes. And I think that if you enjoy the horse industry, you get to live life rather than work. Yep. 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 No, that's good. That's good. What about people who've influenced you and helped you a bit in your career? I've got quite a few people. I like to continue to look for people who do things better than what I do. 
So I'm always watching, whether it be at a, you know, an eventing comp and mm-hmm. watching other competitors about how they train, how they warm up, what they're doing in their cool downs, you know, around the stable block sort of thing. But probably the people who have influenced me the most are those who help with the behind, the before training, before you get to that elite level um, of understanding your horse, becoming a better horseman or horsewoman. And probably I've dabbled in different parts along, but these people have given me just, they've hit and they've given, you know, some snippet of wisdom that has stuck and I've been able to apply it either to the horse that I've had at the time or one that's come in to my life since then. So um, they're generally from a range of different backgrounds. They're just people who are able to get horses to do what they want without having sort of control over them, if you like, with equipment. So um, Zaley Thomas is a, a girl, lady up Queensland way, and she has worked in the movie industry for a, a very long time, um, training animals for movie sets and things like that. And um, I really enjoyed understanding some of the skill sets that she's used to train animals. What sort of skill sets? Just give us a bit more of an idea then, because I'm sure that the listeners will be interested to pick up a few extra tips? So I sort of used from her, not a quicker system, but being able to manoeuvre without having any gear on a horse. This is generally working with youngsters. Mm-hmm. But just being, that probably the introduction, I'd been using Monty Roberts as my braking method at the time. And it was sort of running reins and long reining and, you know, that sort of system. And I came to, David was like a complete left wing at the time. It was probably one of my first, I was about or 17 at the time and it was the first time I'd looked at being able to get a horse in a roundyard in a square yard to be able to manoeuvre be able to control where its feet went in a very simplistic mm-hmm. way be able to get the stop be able to get it to turn be able to get it to follow me be able to get it to you know go back without actually having a physical hand on it and probably the, the thing that worked with her and then I went and saw Guy McLean work Zaley's was more it had to happen now because she's under a time pressure with when she has to have things on set Mm. where Guy was like more understanding read the horse more about what the horse is actually telling you so from Zaley I learned a heap then I sort of went on and ran into Guy and watched a couple of his performances and then really enjoyed those so went and found some more information about and then started to learn more about the language of the horse what, although it's not speaking English to you, what it is actually telling you mm-hmm. through all its cues, whether it be its ears, its eyes, its its flinch, you know, swallowing, chewing, those sorts of things. And then I've had a couple of others who I've really enjoyed and probably more recently I've sort of tapped in with Warwick Schiller. I haven't actually met Warwick. I haven't actually done a clinic with Warwick. I've just met someone who happened to, who has. And without sort of saying, you know, like this is where we're going, being learning from that person has been come into my life with my three-star horse, who is a high-flight animal. He's very educated. He's very good 95% of the time. And at 18 months ago, at Melbourne three-day, he'd been working beautifully three days before. He'd been working beautifully all the way up to the dressage. He'd worked beautifully for half of it. Mm-hmm. And then he'd have these little skit moments. And I just looked and went, here is a horse that is like obedient, well-schooled, at the top of his game. 
he knows what his dressage is and he just got these this thing that does it. So I yeah. went looking for what I needed to fix and Warwick's philosophy has come in. It's worked with him. So I now have a familiarization that I do with him and he's terrible. Like he, he at home, if I move anything, he knows. Mm. But I have a system now that gets him to actually deal with it rather than bottle it and then explode later on. So that's been a very interesting, and as I say, it's come into my life at a time when I needed that skill set and it's worked and we still use the three or four people that I've had behind. Just talk a little bit more about that, you know, about how you are working with your horse so that he gets through it rather than bottling it all up. If you can just talk a bit more about that and give us a bit of an insight there. Yeah, look, it's probably got, there's a lot of background that we've done, but basically I in the dressage world and the trainers that I'd had, I'd had various different coaches. It was like when he gets tight, put him lower, drive him forward, mm. et cetera. But he's 16, he's 17.2 and he's 600 kilos. Yep. So when he then decides that he can't control, mm. <laughs> he mm. would always get out of, the, out of the frame. And he doesn't do much. He just costs you two marks, but two marks here and there. Sure gets rather costly in our sport. So with Warwick, we went right back, and what we found was he never really assessed his environment. He would block it out and just go through like he's a high-flight animal. Mm. So we would just look to get him to assess, and if he did wish to run away, he could, but I would antagonize him in that way. And it wasn't like whip or anything else. It was just flapping. Mm-hmm. And then he would be represented to what it was that was the issue. While he went to it, I sat very quietly. And while he went away, he was antagonized again. Yep. But it sort of works in the opposite. So if he didn't want to work in a particular area, that was fine. But I would work him harder further away. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say, you can go over there and you can stand quietly. I don't want to be over there. Okay, well, you can go and work over here. Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to make him go to something, I just when he went away from it, that's when it became an issue for him. If yeah. he went to it, the thing that he didn't like, he was rewarded. So at Adelaide this year, at the four-star, it worked really, really well. It's a high atmosphere. There's a crowd, there's TV cameras, there's umbrellas, there's cross-country fences in the arena that are set up. They're all things that would normally be issues for him. And he tends, you know, just having the judges sitting in their little boxes is just something that he gets tight. And you're trying to keep the horse as supple as you can. So in familiarisation, he doesn't get to walk with anyone else. He doesn't get any contact on the reins. And I let him just walk around that area and he will beeline. Like, so when we first started the familiarisation, he would beeline to the gate. So when he got to the gate, he would just get put in a little circle. I'd flap my legs and then he would take me away basically to start with, he only takes me 10 metres, he comes back to the gate. Then he mm-hmm. takes me 20 metres, then he brings me back to the gate. Yep. And eventually he just doesn't want to go to the gate. So then he goes along and then he'll realise, oh my gosh, there's an umbrella down there. Well, you can either go to the umbrella, he doesn't want you. He goes away, he gets antagonised, he goes mm-hmm. back to it. And in the end, he's happy to stand anywhere in that arena. So mm-hmm. then when I come out the next day to do the test, he's focusing on me and not focusing on what's that umbrella and what's this and what's that. So since we've started this about 18 months ago now, I haven't had touch wood, (laughs) any blowouts in our dressage. And that's been a real good focus point for us. Yeah, yeah. 
And when you say it like that, it makes sense, but it's a little different to what a lot of people are training, you know. So just sort of having that method to work with that particular horse has been good. And, Mm. you know, hopefully if any of the listeners have got a horse that they're working with that's having a similar problem, that they can say, right, well, I'm going to try this method and just see that it works okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as some of said to me, I think when you get desperate to start looking for other things, mm, mm. <laughs> you know, when you sit at your end wits of why can't I get it to work? And this is going completely outside of my discipline training methods, if you like. It's not traditionally in, in this, but I think being well-rounded in your horsemanship mm. allows you to get more from the horses that you've got. And that's why I've gone looking for something else from riders who are doing different disciplines to me and thinking, yeah, I really like the way their horse does that. You know, yes, it's not in my sport, but their ability to get the horse to do that is only going to help me if I can get my horse to do that, you know, if he can understand that that concept. So that's sort of the way I look. Yep, yep, no, that's good, that's good. Now, Tanya, tell us about the horse that you think has influenced you most within your career. (laughs) Um, I've probably had a couple who, three horses I'd say, the horse that I've just spoken about Mm -hmm. has probably had a fairly instant, he's a horse that I've bred myself. You might need to say his name as well. Oh, Yorkshire? Yep. So he's probably, although to most people he looks pretty straightforward, he's just a little quirky as most top level horses are. So trying to fine tune those little quirkinesses has been a real learning experience and probably taken me in different directions than what I probably ever would have thought. There's probably two or three other horses who have really influenced. So one was just a homebred horse who we got broken in by somebody else and they nicknamed him Snake because he just wiggled and spooked and did all sorts of funny things and they said he just he's never still, so just watch him. He slithers everywhere. And again, he wasn't an eventer or anything. He, he sort of went to show horse, but he was pretty tight. You had to sort of put your lycra suit on before mm-hmm. you got on because anything that flapped was not on. If you swished a fly, you'd sort of end up on the deck. He'd nick off and things like that. So I had been working to educate him at Walk, Trot and Canter and his leads and all that sort of stuff. And that was okay, but I still couldn't move. So if he tripped, that was fine. But if I dare moved on top, it wasn't going to work. So that's probably where I ran into Zaley and we did work sort of stuff that we I learned with Zaley with him. And it was really the first partnership that I had with a horse where I just didn't end up, I didn't have any gear on him and he would go where I wanted. I used completely, basically sign language to maneuver him around and my legs and things like that. And that was something that really influenced that he was a horse who mentally struggled with the bridle with you flapping and that and then to end up being able to just signal him where I wanted him rather than use reins was really really rewarding Mm -hmm. and just gave me another option to what I was going to do the other horse that played interest was my first attempt with a mare really talented not traditional classical in in the way that she did stuff but jump, she went straight to pre-novice. She sort of skipped everything else in between. And I took that a bit for granted. And I ended up, she was quite a long-bodied mare, very long over the loins. Suppleness wasn't in her vocabulary whatsoever. 
And anyway, I went and got some dressage help because I was quite naive about, you know, the finer tips of dressage. And the person I went to said, right, she's, she's seven now. She needs to be round or she needs to be short. You need to do this. And she was a good man. She did that for that lesson. And I got probably one or two more rides out of that. And I kept to be like, yes, this is what you've got to do. And yeah, right, that's going to be better. And on the, the, the fourth day, she said, no, thank you. You can do that. And I'm not really going to be any part of it. And she never forgave me for it. So I ended her career very quickly. So it sort of taught me that it only takes five minutes to break something. Mm. And it can take a lifetime to fix it. So I've always kept that little bit of knowledge just in my background when you know I start to get a bit frustrated about something and think no I actually just need to walk away because if I do the wrong thing here it's going to bite me in the backside for quite some time yeah so she she was to the point where as soon as I brought the dressage saddle out that was the end of the ride yeah <laughs> I was yeah, able to do yeah, flat work yeah. in a jump saddle in a jumping environment that was okay but everything else she said no and it was very defined about it so um that was very unfortunate but a, a big learning curve yep yeah all right what do you think then you know thinking about the horses that you've ridden what do you think your proudest moment my proudest moment is probably getting to adelaide mm-hmm. entering the four star to be lucky enough to have a horse to be able to take there is i feel very blessed about that because it is there's so many elements to try and get right to even get there there was probably a lot of self-doubt about it. So that's probably my proudest moment. And then there's a lot of other ones that come along, like the first time you get a horse to do something, whether it be a youngster and they're a bit reluctant about something and you get them there or they're not, you know, that brave on the jump and then they actually end up going quite well and making one star level or something. You think, wow, that's that's mm. a huge achievement for that horse, you know. They're probably a 95-centimetre horse or whatever and here they are doing this for you. Yep. So, yep. um. I always get a little buzz out of those sorts of things. You know, the first time I did clean flying changes, you know, yeah. they're very, I'm very easy to please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, that, yeah, it's like the lots of little moments as well, isn't it? Yeah, mm, yeah. Mm, mm. What do you think, you know, and you talked a little bit about it before, you know, challenges, thinking about where you are now, you know, as far as spending your days riding and competing and coaching and you know, totally involved within that horse um, horse atmosphere, horse work. What do you think's been your biggest challenge and how did you overcome it? From a competitive perspective, mm. one of the biggest challenges I've had is just having a bit of self-belief mm-hmm. to be able to, to do things at the, the higher level. I've never been, you know, an overnight success. It's been a long, slow journey. So... It's been that challenge of, yes, shall we go, looking. I don't like to go half done if I can, you know, I wanted to have all the boxes ticked as much as I possibly can. So sometimes that becomes a little bit of a an issue because I'll doubt and go, oh, but I haven't done this or I haven't <laughs> done that. Yep. So there's been a bit of a mindset of coming around and to change that and get people behind you who can help you with that because it, it is, once you start to get through the, the high levels, it can be quite daunting getting it all together mm-hmm. and then thinking geez you know can I actually do this you know it's not just about the cross country there's a few other things that sort of you're trying to get the whole package together so that's probably one the other biggest challenge is actually just keeping a little bit of a balance on between the riding side and the coaching side 
making sure that you're able to do both well and just establishing the timetable that allows that to happen. So I sort of started when I first went into this that, you know, being the, the flavor of the month, if you like, I was new on the scene in the area as far as being able to coach now rather than my time when I was working full-time didn't allow for it at all. So I was like, oh, okay, I had to try and fit everybody in. But then I found that I was coaching so much that I, the horses were getting, you know, I wasn't getting all mm. the horses work that I wanted work. Yep. So I've sort of worked out now that I ride, I do mine in the morning and then I'm open for lessons in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And that seems to give a much better balance and a sanity for everyone involved. Everyone's getting what they need rather than sort of doing one, trying to fit in another horse. Oh, I can't get that and different little things like that. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. Just going back to the self-belief, you know, because we've got two different things here we're looking at. Mm-hmm. How do you think you've overcome it? What would you say to someone who needs it, you know, needs to have that self-belief that you've got? What advice would you give them? Find find people who believe in you to support you. You definitely mm-hmm. need that. You can't do it on your own. And sometimes your closest family and friends aren't those people. Mm-hmm. It might be a fellow competitor because I always think, you know, my mother, love her dearly, she would say it was great no matter what. Okay. <laughs> and she'd say, you can do it. And I know she'd say you can do it. But as much as any doubt, I sometimes you needed to hear it from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The talking down, what I, my biggest thing was the way I spoke to myself and the things that I would always pick and pick a negative. Allow yourself to, to embrace the positives that you do do and the things that you do well. Give yourself the compliment for it rather than, oh, but I could have done that better and I needed to do that better. That's fine because you want to improve, but also allow yourself to give yourself a pat on the back for the good stuff. Yep. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And what about the balancing the riding and the coaching? Is that just time management or what sort of strategies would you use there? I think time management's helped hugely. It's allowed me to keep better records for each of my riders. It gives a sense of structure for the day, particularly I like structure. So I didn't like having, you know, someone was booked in for a lesson and then I had 45 minutes or I had an hour, but that didn't really allow. And then someone would arrive early and someone would arrive late where now it's like no one arrives before 12 <laughs> and it's up to me to organize that six or seven hours of the morning and however that works. And then in the afternoon, if someone arrives late or someone arrives early, it's that's in that six hours and that's fine because it doesn't influence the horses. So then I'm more relaxed about it as well. So you yep. don't find yourself stressing those little minor stresses where you're just lifting your anxiety levels without you really realising, which is burning energy mm, that mm, you don't need sure. to. For sure. You're already working hard enough. Yep. So, um, yeah, by taking that out, the day becomes just a lot more flow to it. Yep. All right. Now I'd like you to put your coach's cap on and think about a common fault that you see, you know, with your riders, trainers or even handling and also how it can be fixed? I, the Probably the most common thing in what I see is people not reading the cues that their horses give them. Mm-hmm. So visually, they're not reading when the horse is telling you it's struggling, it doesn't understand, it's 
having anxiety about what you're doing or it's not coping with its environment. What sort of signals would a horse be giving? You know, like people not reading the cues, but people might not recognise the cues. What, what sort of things should they be looking for? I'm probably, and I'm speaking here not of high-level competitors. I have a lot of adult rider people coming through, pony club people, mm. up to about the one-star level. Um, just things like the horse's presentation of their eye, whether their eye is rolling back at you, whether eye, and I use a lot of ear cues. So if I squeeze a rein and ask the horse to soften to a rein, I expect that an ear will either flick back or and the horse will soften. But you'll get people who, you know, the horse is wanting to stare off down the paddock or across the arena or something at whatever's caught its eye, and you're like, the horse has zoned you out, and they haven't recognised that. And if you can read those signs, then you've got more understanding about what your horse is actually thinking at the time and whether it is tuned into you or to some to some other environment mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. caught attention. Things like reading. When you're you're asking your dressage horses to work harder, that they do need a, a break from it. So you don't want to get to the point where they you want to keep asking them to contribute to it, but you don't want to get to the point where they say, "Look, enough's enough." Yep. So what sort of cues would they give when they're getting close to that point? Because they're very subtle these cues, and I, I think if you don't actually talk about it, people don't know where to look. You know, they're. And yeah. sometimes it's individual to a horse, so it's mm. not common that every horse is going to do this. But it may be a swish of the tail. It may be just a little reluctance with a couple of strides of, I don't want to go forward. But you've got to read that as to, to your horse. It may be a locking on a rein. It may be that the horse is wanting to drop out. It may be that it does start to spook. So you've been going along really fine. The work's got really hard or they're not understanding what you do, and then they decide that that pot plant that's been there for the last 20 laps, whatever, is now an issue. You know, those little things that are that are coming in. Or you're going around and suddenly your horse is starting to show some tension. The neck's sort of risen, the ears are gone forward. Yeah, there might be a distraction. You can ride that through without letting it get any further by identifying that there is a change in your environment you need to yeah, support your horse in that area. Support your horse that, no, this is what it needs to do, not get distracted by that, or it's okay, we've got it under control. You can relax, horse, Yep. Just so that it doesn't become something else rather than the horse goes, oh, there's something over there, I need to shy, I need to go, and it just escalates further. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. I like the way that you're explaining it a bit more, you know, so so people then can start to look and start to realise about their individual horse, yeah. It's, yeah, it is about your individual horse. Learn to read your horse and its cues because not every horse is going to be the same as every other horse. Mm. Mm. No, Otherwise, it would be easy if it was like that. Oh, that's right, that's right. Everyone be riding, <laughs> riding and winning at four-star. It'd be a piece of cake. That's right. <laughs> okay, now have you got a book that you can recommend to our listeners? something that's going to complement their training. <laughs> I've got two books that I refer to quite regularly now. I use the internet, I think I said to you earlier, Glass, I use the internet a lot to sort of flick for different ideas and, and what's sort of on the, the forums at the moment and different sort of exercises that you could possibly incorporate into your training. But two books that I've been using at the moment, one is by Gillian Higgins mm-hmm. and it's called Posture and Performance. And I'm a very visual person, so I find this book 
really, really good. It's just full of pictures with the horses and they've been anatomically painted. So they've got people riding them, leading them, doing all sorts of different disciplines. And it just shows where the bones are and where the muscles are at that point in time and where the sort of, you know, as you're asking your horse to rein back, where the balance is. They've got also the nervous system and the respiratory system going in there as well a little bit to show just how your horse operates underneath the skin level, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I just find that what I've been using it for a lot is working out, you know, um, I've probably started to look more into body work with my own horse over the last sort of 12, 18 months than I ever have before. So I use this as a visual to come back to it. Now, he's not lifting here or he seems to be a bit sore there, but I'm not skilled. I'm still learning all through this area. So I'll come back and I'll say, so, you know, what muscle is there and where does it run and where's its attachment and where's its origin sort of Mm -hmm. thing? Mm -hmm. Or I'm asking him to do this, but I seem to have the shape slightly wrong. What am I doing to him anatomically? So I really do come back to that as a real reference point. Yep. And I said, it's very visual and very, very clear and easy to find what I'm looking for at the time. Okay, good, good. That's fun. Yeah. And the second one is Beyond Horse Massage. It's an introductory book that I've got of the Masterson's Method. Who wrote that one? Do you know? It's actually Jim Masterson. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. Yeah. And it's just alleviating soreness and strain yep. and tension within the horse that's interactive. So um, I've had a lady who has come into my world who has followed this method and I've just seen some pretty remarkable results from the work that she's done on my horses. So I've just taken myself to learn more about it mm-hmm. and as I'm only up to the introductory stage of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Probably an endless line to learn there, but yeah, that's yeah. where I'm to. But you started on that path and, um, you know, when you finish that, who knows where it's going to go. That's yeah. right. So what have you got planned, though? What are you looking forward to? Um, so this year we've got a few things sort of incorporated. I've got some new horses and youngsters that are really at the beginning of their competition career. They haven't even had a start yet. So I wanted to get those ones, the second half of the year, they would sort of really come into competition. We've also got the two older boys. One of those will be aimed for Adelaide. Yep. And we'll try and learn from what we did last year and go and have another crack and um, try and have a a better result than what we did last year. (laughs) And in the lead up, I'm going to head across and have a look at the World Equestrian Games. Oh, good. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that I'm really looking forward to that. I sort of was hoping as part of reward of getting to Adelaide, I thought I'd go to Rolex yep. at Kentucky. And I think that that's all to do with those self-belief, isn't it? You know, like you're thinking about, right, well, I'll just go to this place and, you know, that's, that's part of you've got to know what it is and all about it before you believe that you're really going to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So, um, no, we'll go have a look at all the different disciplines that people do at the at the cream of the crop and yep. and see how, how it goes and what it's like in that sort of environment. And, yeah, yeah, it should be really good. No, I think that's great. Good. All right. Now, what about your philosophy with horses? Do you want to just sum that up? Look, my philosophy with them is that um, 
there should be always learning. So for a horse, if he can learn one new thing each day, mm-hmm. then that's all I ask for him. Okay. So whether he asks to do something better than what he's done it before, to understand it better, or to do something completely new for that day and learn that he hasn't done before. And I just keep working from that. So that's the, the way that I sort of to go through. It should be that they, they understand where it's coming from mm-hmm. and what is sort of the, is clear for the horse of what is right and what is wrong. Yeah. So he knows which direction he wants the toes to take. And that's where the consistency in work comes in as well, isn't it? You know, like every yeah. time you work with a horse, they do a bit of improvement, but they're going to keep improving if you keep being consistent with them and keep working them and keep doing something with them every day. Yeah, yeah. But I yeah. do like them that they do something that they haven't done mm-hmm. in that it's not the same old, same old because, sure. like, my attention span's pretty short. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so, um, you know, and mix it up so that it keeps them keen to find what is happening for today. Yep, yep we consolidate on that and then I just want you to try this. So, yeah, that, that's where I, I sort of work with, with my guy. All right. Now, Tanya, how can people contact you? I'm easily contactable um, through social media. Mm-hmm. We've got, I go through Facebook. Yep. People on Facebook through Tanya Harding Equestrian Park mm-hmm. or Jerma PH, which is a bit of a hard one to spell, but... <laughs> Um, <laughs> Look, if we put those details on your page, okay, yep. so it'll be horsechats.com slash yeah. Tanya Harding or just go and, and um, you know, search for Tanya or search for Harding. I'm sure that people will be able to find it, but say it anyway because people might be there with a pen and paper ready to write it down. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so Jerima, J-I-R-R-I-M-A and then P-H for performance horses. Um, so we've, we've sort of kept that one as it took a while for people to be able to pronounce it. And now down here anyway, it's, it's people are fairly familiar with it. So we're sort of stuck with it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's good. That's good. All right, Tanya. Well, thanks very much for talking to us today. Great talking to you. Great hearing about, you know, the insights and about just the training tips, you know, and, and people responding to those little cues. And I think, if you can, um, you know, what you've put out there, if people can start to think about the little cues that their horses might be giving them, I think that's that's good. And also when you were talking about people who inspired you, you know, just the different methods of doing things a bit different, you know, just thinking outside the box, I suppose. Thinking outside mm. my discipline, I guess, is yep. probably, yeah. Mm. The box is pretty big, but sometimes <laughs> we get a bit pigeonholed into our own discipline, sure. I think. Sure, that's good. <laughs> All right, great to talk to you. Well, thank you very much for having us. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 